Well, we are in a series in John's epistle. We're starting in 1 John. And this week we are in chapter 2. And if you would turn there with me. This letter to the Ephesian church, a church that John was a member of as well as a pastor too at some point in his life. It is a church where John is settling in his later years. He is an octogenarian. He's in his 80s. It is a church that he loves and cares for deeply. And it is a church that in Ephesus, a major city at the time, a city where there is much um, false religions and there is much, many problems with respect to false teachers, particularly false teachers that are undermining the Christian faith of the believers in the Ephesian church. And by this time, the Ephesian church is probably in its second to third generation. It's been around a while. And yet these teachers have come in and they have begun to undermine these these dear saints and their their assurance in Christ is being assaulted. It's not just being tweaked. It's being assaulted. And so John, as a pastor, is, is going after these teachers and going after this church in a, in a manner as a pastor would to care for them and protect them. And so as we are reading along, in the background, there, there, again, where there are numbers of themes in this, in this epistle. Uh, the, the theme of love is, is, is one of the, the major themes of this epistle. The, the theme of, of light and darkness is another major theme. But under, underlying all of this, John writes to bring assurance to the salvation of these individuals, to bring assurance of their place and their hope in Christ. And so as we're reading, just know in the background is these words of, of hope and assurance that John brings so that these faithful believers do not drift or stray from the gospel. They do not stray from the truth of who God is and, and what He has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. So as we look at chapter 2, turn with me to verse 12. And here we have John writing, and he says, verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. Father, we, we sit before your word this morning. Willing students to hear you speak to us and to hear you teach us and to allow you to transform us by this truth. And Lord, that is my prayer for this church this morning, that they would be transformed by your love and your truth. And Lord, I pray that each person here would, by your spirit, be enabled to hear and to receive and to learn. Father, help me in my weaknesses and limitations to proclaim your truth because I'm confident that your spirit will work through your word. So please do that this morning. And most of all, Father, may you glorify your name in this passage and in the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Robert, an experienced skydiver, was readying himself for a jump when he spotted another man outfitted to dive wearing dark glasses, carrying a white cane and holding a seeing-eye dog by a leash. Shocked that the blind man was also going to jump, Robert struck up a conversation expressing his admiration for the man's courage. Curious, he asked, how do you know when the ground is getting close? Easy, the blind man replied. The leash goes slack. If you're a dog lover, get over it. (laughs) Obviously, warnings are not always effective, especially if they're not timely or they are not heeded. And today's passage in John's epistle is a strong warning, a challenging imperative, and a gracious reminder of God's love. And as a deeply caring pastor and father in the faith, John writes to the Ephesian church to remind them of their hope in Christ, and particularly in this passage, to warn them of the danger they face living in the world living in the particular world of Ephesus at that time, but overall, because this is the timeless truth of God's Word, living in the world that we're in today as well. It is one thing to live in the world, John is saying, but it is a completely different thing to be of the world. And that is what John is warning them about. He reminds, he writes to remind them. He writes and he says, I write, I write, I write, I am writing, I am writing. He writes to remind them of what is true and what they personally have come to know about Christ. And all of the scurrilous attacks against Jesus, attacks against his deity, attacks against his humanity and his resurrection, attacks that are false hoods, they are making their way through the church. He tells them, you know differently. You know differently. Look at your history. Do not allow the lies and do not allow the falsehoods and the temptations of this world to draw you away from the truth. And he's saying, he's telling them, do not be deceived. So our big idea this morning from this passage is this. If we say we love God, then we must have a hatred for the world John speaks of in this passage. 
And the main points are the good news of the gospel and who we are in Christ, a grave warning against loving the world, and a gracious promise to those who genuinely love God. The good news of the gospel, a grave warning against loving the world, and a gracious promise to those who genuinely love God. I'm not a fan of alliteration, but it seemed to work really well in this message. And so we are using it. All right, number one, the first point that John is making, the good news of the gospel and who we are in Christ. Long before John gets to verse 15 and this imperative, this, and it is a, in many ways, it is a thunderous imperative. Remember, John, John is not, at his age, he's not wasting words. And so before, but before we get to verse 15, where he says, do not love the world, John wisely wisely turns their attention, turns their hearts to the gospel. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. That is the, what is known in theology as the indicative. And then and that always occurs before in scripture, you'll see before the imperative. And here, the first point, the good news of the gospel and who we are in Christ, John is writing to this church. Now, commentators and historians don't have a consensus on exactly who these three, three groups are in 12 through 14, little children, fathers, and young men. And, and just be aware, um, this is not sexist in any way. Um, this includes the church. Um, it is the style of the writing at that of the day. Um, are they actually children? Are they actually young adults? Are they really seniors? Maybe so. Or is he speaking to spiritual newborns who are young in the faith and then young men who have, you know, who've been around a while and, and know the scriptures and are strong or spiritual seniors like me who um, are just old and we look wise because we either have gray hair or no hair. Um, the, who he's writing to is, is interesting to know, but it's not crucial to, um, to our point this morning because knowing who these people are does not affect the purpose behind John's writing. He makes it abundantly clear, though, why he is writing. First, it is to remind them of the good news of the gospel. I am writing to you, little children, verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He is, now we understand, as a, as a man in his 80s, in a sense, everybody is a dear child to John. I'm not quite yet 63, so you're friends. Soon you will be dear children. <laughs> Hopefully if I make it to 80, you will be dear children. Everybody in this church is a child in a sense. And as you read in chapter one, you see he writes, dear children. As you read in chapter three and four, you see he writes, little children or dear children. That's who these folks are. But he is talking to the whole church. And wisely here, he is beginning with the gospel. And in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children. And he says this, because your sins are forgiven for his names. Who's, whose names? Christ's name. Jesus' name, for his name's sake. 
And then look down to later in verse 13. I write to you children because you know the Father. Not only are you my dear children, my little children, more importantly, let me remind you of this, of the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. Not only, dear child, have your sins been forgiven, but you know the Father. You are a child of God. I want you to be secure. I want you to be assured that the gospel has done its work in you. Not only are you clean from your sin, but you belong to the Father. You are His child now. So in verse 12, we're, we're forgiven. And further in verse 13, we know the Father. The gospel truth what it means when we are changed, we are transformed by the regenerating work of the Spirit in our lives. We are different. We are children of God. And then in verses 12 through 14, twice he talks to the fathers. He says, and whether it's older people or older saints, John's talking to, it is that they have a deep knowledge, a deep history with the Lord. I write, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And he repeats it again in verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And understandably, John is most likely thinking back to verse 1 of this, of this this book where he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. That is who he's he's talking to. These men who know Christ, who know what it means to live and follow Christ as disciples, these fathers Think of, think of the older men and women among us who have stood with God for decades, who are models of faithfulness to us. To Larry Earls and Larry Wethji, Walt Rohr, Stephen Griney, Dave Barnett, and others. To Jean Mays, and to Marilyn, to Stephanie, and to Nora. Men and women who have known from the beginning. This is who John is talking to. And these are the kind of people that really understand the the temptations of life and and that they're anchored firmly to Christ, especially in a storm-tossed world of sin and temptation. As older folks, we know him who is from the beginning. And then he goes on to young men in verses 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And again, in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He is speaking to to all of us in one respect because all of us in Christ have overcome the evil one. All of us have 
the word of God abiding in us. All of us are strong in Christ. The Lord is our strength. And because Christ has overcome the evil one, we do as well in our walk. And that is who John is talking to. And he talks about those who are abiding in the word of God. Abiding is a very important word in scripture. And no doubt John is thinking back to his gospel, John 15, where he talks about the vine and the branches and abiding. And what that means, the the attachment of, of being attached to the Lord, being attached to his word. So John, John reminds them of who they are in Christ and what God has done in them and what he is doing through them. He has forgiven them. They are children of God. They have history and have known him from the beginning. And they are strong in faith because of the word of God. And they've overcome and they're standing for God. Whether old or young or in between. And so the gospel is just laid out before John gets to verse 15. And so the first first point is, is the good news of the gospel and who we are in Christ. John makes sure that we are secure and assured that we belong to Christ before he digs in, and dig in he will, into the practical realities that can scuttle our faith and can scuttle our usefulness and can undermine our assurance in Christ. So secondly, he writes to warn them of the very thing that will ruin their assurance. The very thing that will undermine their usefulness and their faithfulness to Christ. And he begins with, in verse 15, a negative imperative. An imperative, love one another. That's a positive imperative. Here is a negative imperative. Do not love the world. Throughout John's letter, the theme of love in this letter is addressed more than any other New Testament book. Love is talked about here more than any other New Testament book. 51 times love is spoken of in this book. And all are positive except one. This one right here. This is the only place we, where we are told to love not. It is a negative exhortation and it is a significant warning. So after reassuring him that they are in a state of grace, he gives them a strong fatherly admonishment. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, throughout the Bible, we often see the word world. And depending upon the context of the passage, it can have very different meanings. In Psalm 24, the world, using the word world, is the natural world where we see around us. We, and it's a natural world that we should love because it is God's creation. It's a world that we marvel at when we drive on, on Sunday morning through 
you know, I'm out on the roads and we see the beautiful fall colors. That's the world in Psalm 24. And that's a world that we should love because it's God's, God's creation. And in John 3.16, the word world means there the entire human race. We should love them as Christ has loved the world. That we are to love one another. We are to love our enemies. We are to love our neighbor. So there is this love of the world as we see in John 3.16. But here in, in 1 John, world has a much more sinister meaning. The word world here means simply everything that opposes Christ and his work on the earth. It is a world that has abandoned its creator and living, is living apart from his rule. It is a godless world that is in total opposition to Christ. Now, you might be surprised to find that the Greek word for love here, do not love, or if anyone loves the world, is the word agape. Now, think about that. We talk about this unconditional love. We talk about the agape love of God. But here, the word agape talks about our unconditional love of the world. This is how deep a love we can wrongly have for the things of the world. Robert Yarbrough, in his commentary, says this kind of love is an image of life where God does not rule. It is a world that has abandoned its creator and it lives apart from his rule. It is, you might be thinking, of course, now unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, live this way. I understand that. They they love the world. But it's not unbelievers who John is writing to. He's writing to a church just like this. He's writing to a group of people who, little children who know their sins are forgiven, who know the Father, to fathers who have known him from the beginning, to young men who have the word of God abiding in them and are strong and overcoming. That's who he's writing to. That's who he's saying, do not love the world. A simple definition that you love the world This is Larry Malamut's definition is simply this. You're cozy with the world. You're cozy with the world. And it would be be a grave mistake to narrow loving the world to only the things you do and don't do. It's more about our disposition. It's about our perspective, our comfort level with the world, our acceptance of the world, our silence in the world, our acquiescence to the life of the world around us that opposes Christ and his rule. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, loving the world is the sin of allowing your appetites, ambitions, and conduct to be, and I love this word, fashioned according to, to earthly values, to be fashioned according to earthly values, shaped by earthly values. In other words, the world is not what is happening around you, 
but what you are allowing to happen in you. Let me say that again. The world is not what is happening around you, but what you are allowing to happen in you. That's what John is after. And John gives us three telltale signs of loving the world. In verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And now verse 16, the three telltale signs. For all that is in the world, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. So the first telltale sign is is the desires of the flesh. Feelings and appetites would be what John is after here. And in other words, what are we craving? And oftentimes, we can can discover that we're craving something that God has not provided. That's where idolatry slips in. We are craving something God has not provided. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it is God has not yet chosen to provide it, and yet we crave and pursue it. And that is what John is after. And it's more than the obvious sins of sex and pornography and stimulants like alcohol and drugs and, and food in excess. It is, it's any desire. It's a desire. It's inward that rules our thoughts and our actions. It could be something so simple as a quiet, I want a quiet house when I get home from work. Or an unmet expectation. Or I just, I just want peace. Or I, want, I desire a stress-free life. I desire convenience. I want life to be easy. I desire perfect, obedient children. I desire happiness and I avoid anything that makes me unhappy. It's those kinds of desires. And there's nothing wrong with desiring obedient children. There's nothing wrong with desiring peace. But John is after something here. John is addressing a heart issue. In Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart lies also. In other words, John is after, there's something of this world that you are treasuring in your heart. And that treasure far exceeds your love for God because that is where you are loving the world. James 4 tells us, Why are there fights and quarrels among you? And the answer is simply, he says, you want something and you're not getting it. That is the kind of craving John is writing about here. You, you want to get at the heart of conflict? You want something you're not getting and you want to get to the heart of conflict? In that moment, you are loving the world. That's what John is after. When you are in conflict and you are fighting and quarreling over something, you're not getting what you want. At that moment, John says, you are loving the world. And so his first is that the first telltale sign of loving the world is inward. It's just our, our unmet cravings that we battle for and run after and treasure in our hearts. Secondly, he goes on in verse 16 to say, for all that is in the world, the desires of the eyes. John doesn't stop at the heart. 
It's not just what you think, but it's how you look at the world around you that leads to loving the world. In, in Scripture, our eyes play a significant role. Proverbs 4.25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze straight before you. Proverbs 17, the discerning sets his face towards wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. And Proverbs 27, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. And then Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And that theme of light and darkness is we see in chapter 1 of John's letter. And so here, when he talks about the eyes of the world, the eye, the, seeing through the eyes and that we have this desire of our eyes. I mean, it's just, one can imagine John thinking back to the Sermon on the Mount as he writes these words. And he's thinking, I would, I would contend he's thinking of the 10th commandment. How many know what the 10th commandment is? Do not covet. Do not covet. The challenge and the temptation we face is that we live in a world that is hell-bent on teaching you to covet what you see. It is going out of its way. The world is characterized by the desire of the eyes, mostly for the sake of sinful pleasure. I see it. I want it. I'll have it no matter what the cost. Why do you think, why do you think in a grocery store, they put candy right at the checkout? At eye level of children in a cart. (laughs) I see it, I want it, and I'll have it no matter what it costs. And how many times have you seen just poor moms with a child who wants that candy at the checkout. And you're thinking, I'll go to another line. It's, it's how our world works. And the world knows about, the world knows this passage, the desire of the eyes. The world knows that. We, listen, advertising agencies and television commercials exist for this purpose. It exists for this purpose. We live in a wealthy and consumer-driven society. And because we do, we must constantly, we must constantly and consciously be judging our own reaction to what we see. Are we drawn in? Because commercials are no longer subtle. The world's values tell you, you deserve this. And you'll hear that in a commercial. You deserve this. It encourages envy. See your neighbor's new car? Look at your old junker. It encourages pursuing unattainable beauty and an unattainable body. I, I don't care how many commercials about body I'm watching. It ain't working. It's not, it's not going to happen. And listen, what your eyes see, what your eyes see, your heart digests. And so we must be constantly and consciously judging what we see. So 
John is saying, listen, you, you do not want to love the world? Let me tell you how not to love the world. Guard your eyes. Guard your heart and the cravings that, that rise up and guard your eyes by what you see. And, and, and not that you, you walk around the world blind, but you, you judge what you see. And, and it's okay if, if you're watching a football game and one of those commercials comes on, yell at the commercial. Talk back to it. Say, no, no, I, I'm happy with my car. <laughs> and then thirdly, for all that is in the world, the pride of possessions. Other versions say the pride of life. The pride of possessions. It, it conveys the idea that what we have is who we are. That what we own is who we are. That our identity is in our possessions. Our identity is in the things that we own. And sadly, in that, God is absent. And as Christians, listen, as Christians, we've been well taught about the pride of life and the pride of possessions and about the evil and deceitfulness of pride and the value of humility. But listen, we, myself included, we can become adept at boasting in ways that appear so humble. Oh, I just, I just can't believe how gifted my child is. I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> I'm not gifted like that. <laughs> Loving the world is boasting about ourselves. And John is after, he's look, this trinity of evil. That's what this is. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life or possessions. It is a trinity of evil. And it is one that we see most clearly in Genesis 3. A story that you know well in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. There it is. Right there. And we too are susceptible to these world-loving temptations. And listen, if you don't think you are, you've already violated number three. So we are, and, and here's the thing. These kinds of temptations, they're typically not like these big, massive temptations. They're, they're kind of like little warriors, little ninja warriors that just sneak their way into our hearts because we're, being care- we're not being careful to guard Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart. So John is being simple and clear in his presentation as he closes out verse 16. He said, it is this, these things, the, the pride of life, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, these things are not from God. They're from the world. And the tragedy is the human race has set its heart on these things and it celebrates this way of life. 
It just doesn't set its heart. It celebrates this way of life. Kent Hughes says this. He says, worldliness is what our culture does to make sin seem either less sinful or not sinful at all. And worldliness is what our culture does to make righteousness look odd or strange or quirky. So John minces no words in this thunderous declaration. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not. David Jackman in his commentary says this, John challenges us to make Christian decisions about the way we are living today. If we love the world, we cannot love the Father. If we ally ourselves with this world, we live for what cannot last and condemn ourselves to be identified with its decay and ultimate judgment. Such choices are part of our human responsibility. John challenges us to ask whose friend we really are, the world or God's. And as he finishes verse 16, John says, All this is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, and the world is passing away along with its desires. In other words, all of this, my friends, is temporary. So every, everything you, you collect, every possession you have, every toy you own, every our reputations, everything is, it's passing away. And the desire to, to be proud in our possessions, the de- desire that we see from our eyes and that it, inside of our flesh, it's all passing away. Charles Dutton, the actor, spent seven years in prison for manslaughter when he was a young man. While there, he developed an interest in acting. Upon his release, he got some small parts on Broadway, and eventually he hit it big in a production called The Piano Player on Broadway. And his career blossomed to TV and movies. Eventually, he won an Emmy for his work. One, after his Broadway success, he was once asked in an interview, how did you make the remarkable transition through those years in prison to Broadway? Unlike other prisoners, he replied, I never decorated my cell because I wanted to be reminded every day this place is temporary. I never decorated myself. Dutton never regarded his cell as his permanent home. We must not decorate ourselves. This world is passing away. And so John ends with this wonderful promise at the end of verse 17. Yeah, this world is passing away. Don't decorate yourselves because whoever does the will of God, and here's this word again, abides. Abides forever. Listen, our struggle against sin and temptation are not forever. This is, this is gospel news. Eventually, all of the darkness will disappear because God is light and living in his presence means abiding, attached, connected to forever where there is no darkness ever again. And, but until then, we must live in this world. And we must love in this world. But what we love is of greatest importance and determines 
how we live, the course of our lives. We're not to just suddenly run out to a monastery and become ascetics and remove ourselves from the world. No, we, we, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. To love God and not the world, that is to abide. So here, here's my application for these, this, this message. And the application is in the passage. Look at verse 14. The end of verse 14. And the word of God abides in you. There is an expectation with John that you, the reader, are abiding in the word of God. You are abiding in the word of God. You want to not love the world. You want to be not attached to the world. You want to not abide in the world, but abide in God. Abide in his word. Abide in his word. It is why we preach God's word on Sunday. It's why we read God's word together as a church on Sunday. It is why we talk about God's word in our care group. It is why we implore you again and again as pastors, abide in God's word. Not just read God's word, abide in God's word. And that is where John, that's John's application here. You want to overcome? Abide in his word. And then secondly, in verse 17, he gives us another point of application. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There is an expectation that we are doing the will of God. And we are doing the will of God by not loving the world. I titled this message, Don't Decorate Your Cell. We're here temporarily. We're here temporarily. Let's make the most of it. Let's make the best of it. And let us not decorate ourselves as we pass through this world for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you that we can abide in you. Thank you that the love of the Father is with us and has been with us from the beginning. Lord, we ask now as we leave this place that you would help each one of us not love the world. Lord, help us to constantly and consciously judge what we see and what we desire. Help us to do your will that we might abide in your word and overcome the evil one for the glory of your name. We pray. Amen. And our benediction for today, my prayer for you, I think this is well said in Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's God's heart for you. He is going to present you one day blameless before the Lord with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.